Hey everybody, and welcome to our third My Ruby Story. Uh, this week, we're talking to Devin C. Estes. Devin, how's it going? Pretty good. How's everything with you, Chuck? Doing all right. Um, I'm trying to remember here. Uh, I think we had you on not too long ago. Um, yeah, the episode came out in, I want to say January. Yeah, um, we talked about the European Ruby community. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you're still living in, uh, was it Berlin? Yep, still in Berlin. Uh, Going to be here at least another two years, but uh, uh, who knows how long we'll end up staying. But uh, yeah, still living in Berlin, still loving it. I'm actually, since I was last on the show, I've, I've actually finally committed to speaking German, so that's coming better, <laughs> which is <laughs> really helpful when you live in Germany. Uh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, you'll you'll get it all figured out, and then you'll move back to the states. That's probably what's going to happen. That's that's sort of what I'm expecting. <laughs> yeah, I felt like I got the hang of Italian, and then six months later, I my mission was over, and I came home. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah and, that's the way it always works. And for those who are keeping track, uh, Devin was on episode 295, um, which yeah came out in January. So awesome. So I usually ask people the same set of questions and then we just kind of elaborate on whatever's interesting. So okay. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and ask you the first one. And the, that is, how did you get into programming? So I got into computers at kind of an early age. Um, my dad had a, a computer company back in the first like dot-com boom. So like in the nineties and when I was a kid, he tried to get me into it. And I remember when I was eight, I had to build my first computer. He wouldn't just give me a computer. He got the parts and uh, he showed me a little bit of it, but he kind of just like set an eight-year-old alone in a room with a bunch of computer parts and eventually <laughs> like said, try and make this work. And I did, and that was really cool. Um, and I I dug computers a lot from a pretty early age. I think it was like eight. Uh, but then I really wanted to be a hacker. Like the movie Hackers came out when I was like 10 or 11, I think. And I remember seeing it on VHS and thinking it was just so cool. Um, and you know, 11 is kind of an impressionable age. <laughs> so, um, that was sort of my first want to program was to like learn how to be a hacker and then, you know, learn how to like program my TI-83 so I could cheat at school. And like, it was all just terrible reasons for programming. <laughs> but I was also just generally a really bad kid. You know, like I, I uh, the lasting legacy of me as a student is my high school had to invent an F minus for me because I found a loophole in the grading structure. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I was a really bad kid, but I uh, liked computers. Um, and then, you know, my, my parents were continuing to sort of, um, encourage me in playing with computers and programming and stuff. Um, but like any teenager whose parents are pushing them to a reasonable career that they would be really good at, I decided to do something completely different and I went and I studied opera. Uh, so I was an opera singer for a good long bit. Uh, and I have an undergraduate and a master's degree in opera <laughs> and then, nice. Um, so yeah, I went a totally different 
direction for a long time. And I was always just sort of like the guy that was good with computers that was an opera singer. Um, but I wasn't really programming. I was playing around with HTML and CSS and doing some websites and things. And, um, I remember I had, uh, uh, back in like the early two thousands, there was this thing called hotline, which was sort of like an early peer to peer file sharing system, but you had to actually like run a server on your machine. So mm -hmm. I ran a hotline server and that through some like really complicated, like affiliate marketing, but not really marketing. Like people would click my links and stuff. And like, I made enough money running that to pay for my cable modem, which at the time was like really expensive. Um, but I got to have a cable modem and that was cool. And like, uh, so I, I always had computer stuff on the side. Um, uh, but then when I finished grad school in 2009, which was just about the worst time to finish with pretty much no, uh, marketable skills <laughs> and <laughs> a whole lot of student loan debt in 2009. So, um, and I, when I was at grad school, I, um, realize sort of my place in the, the opera world. Like I was, I grew up in Connecticut and I was a good singer in Connecticut. And then I went to undergraduate in Pittsburgh and I was a good singer in Pittsburgh. But then I did my master's at a, a really high level conservatory in New York called Manhattan school of music. And, um, I was not so good there. So <laughs> it's all relative, level, huh? Yeah. At that next level, it was like going from, you know, playing high school football to college football to pro football. And like, I could have been someone that, that like struggled to make the practice squad every year and like could have, could have eked out a career in it. But, um, one thing I learned is that I really like being good at what I do. And when I wasn't really good at what I did anymore, it wasn't as fulfilling to me. Right. Um, and also for me, I, I never really got a huge kick out of the performing aspect of it. It was more about like the study and, the, uh, I, I liked learning, um, learning the music and the characters and, uh, the drama of opera was really compelling to me. But, um, so yeah, I, I finished, uh, finished grad school and then I wound up getting a job doing PR and marketing for a company where basically I was working for Yamaha, the musical instrument manufacturer. Um, and a good part of that given that it was 2009, like they were just really starting to get into digital marketing. And that's something that I had a little bit of skill in. So, uh, cause I was always like the guy that was good with computers. So I did more of that and I started getting back into programming. And, uh, then I went to another company for another, uh, four years, five years, maybe. Um, and a lot of that was digital marketing as well. And then, um, MOOCs started becoming a thing, these massively open online courses. Um, and I remembered from when I was a kid, the, the programmers that worked for my dad were like these really smart people that had computer science degrees and like they, they knew what they were doing. And that was always my impression of what a programmer was. It was like someone who was really good at math and somebody who's crazy smart and knew computers inside and out, not just the way I knew them, but like really knew them. So I was like, well, I really like programming. I want to do it, I think maybe as a career. So I'm going to have to learn all this stuff. So I set out to do a lot of these online classes. And, um, that's when I picked up my first sort of modern programming language when I learned Python because it was good enough for MIT. So I figured, well, that's a good enough place to start. Like that's what their intro courses are in. Mm -hmm. So I'll just learn Python. And, um, I did that and I just started doing more and more 
programming stuff. Um, and it sort of snowballed from, from there, from doing digital marketing to, and like HTML and CSS, uh, CSS stuff for those jobs and, um, real simple, you know, WordPress hacking and stuff like that. And then uh, I started teaching myself and doing little website jobs on the side when I could, which was actually really convenient when I was saving up for an engagement ring and uh, a wedding uh, to have that extra income. That was a nice sort of push to get me doing more of this stuff. Um, and yeah, then I got married and my wife was pregnant and we figured if I'm going to make this change to be a programmer, I got to do it now or else I'm probably never going to do it because I'm going to not have the freedom to feel like I can take the time off to, or to take that risk, you know? So, uh, I went to dev boot camp in 2014. Yeah. 2014. Um, and, uh, from there I had a job like two weeks after, uh, two weeks after I finished, I started, um, and I've been programming in Ruby ever since pretty much. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, I'm going to back up a little bit here because uh, again, and I call this out on most of the episodes where it occurs, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you had some exposure to computers, you know, earlier on in life, but you know, this wasn't, you don't have a CS degree. You didn't kind of take the traditional path. I'm, I'm no. wondering a little bit, did you encounter any, um, imposter syndrome or did you always just feel like, you know what? I, I just kind of get this. I've been doing it forever and it just, you know, it just kind of works. Oh no, God, I still like the one thing I'm sure of in my day to day work is that I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the only thing I know for sure. Um, uh, it, it like, if I knew four years ago what I knew now, I probably would have been able to like skip the the boot camp step and just get a job. Um, like I, I probably had enough experience. Like people were already on LinkedIn. Like you know, I was starting to already get recruiter spam on LinkedIn, and like I probably could have done the work. But in my mind, um, mm-hmm. you need to have some sort of like qualifications. You need to have a certificate or something that says like, I am qualified to do this job. And it's, uh, uh, it, it doesn't actually have to be that way. Like you don't need anyone's approval or, um, certificate to say that you are qualified to do the work. If you can do the work, you can do the work. Um, but then there's always, you know, uh, the very slippery concepts of like, good code and clean code. And, uh, you know, that's something that, um, I've sort of, I struggled with for a long time until I, I did more reading in the academic literature about like what actually matters in code. And, and, and now I'm, I'm in this weird sort of like nihilistic period where it's like, I kind of have imposter syndrome, but I also don't care because nobody can really prove that anything makes any difference in code. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, like when you read all these studies saying like, does refactoring do anything? And like almost all of them say like, well, maybe, but probably not. And there's no real way to measure it. And, you know, uh, so now I, I know that I have no idea what I'm doing, but I also feel like maybe that's not such a bad thing because nobody <laughs> really has any idea what they're doing. <laughs> like <laughs> it's, it's a lot it's, of truth there. Yeah. It's, it's, 
it's crazy to think that, you know, the, the people that I've admired so much for the last couple of years are all still trying to figure out this stuff as much as I am. But when, you know, there's in the, the science of software development from, from what I've found, there's very little science in it. You know, we, we don't really know what makes good code or clean code or easy to maintain code. We have people's opinions, but we don't actually have like empirical facts. So that's, that's actually been, um, comforting in a way it's, it's eased my, my feelings of like, uh, of, of being imposter syndrome and of, of, uh, anxiety around how good I am at doing my job. So now I just, you know, I, I keep one pretty simple metric, which is just how happy are the people that are using my code? Like, can they do their jobs better because of what I'm doing? And I work mostly mm-hmm. on internal tools. So like, that's a pretty easy metric. You know, if someone's screaming at me because something isn't working, then I know I'm not, I got to up my game. But if, if people say that stuff's going well and they're doing their job well and they're happy, then I can not be so anxious about whether or not I'm any good at what I'm doing. <laughs> right. That makes sense. I'm going to pull this back around to the question that I usually ask next, and that is, how did you get into Ruby? So I got into Ruby at the very beginning. The first time I got into Ruby, it was because I was doing a web app in Django in Python. And at the time, there weren't a whole ton of great resources uh, for um a newer person to programming in Python. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. that, from what I understand, that's changed significantly in the last few years. But uh, like in 2014, 2013, there was already a lot of great stuff for Ruby and Rails specifically. Um, And someone had recommended that I take a look at it. So I took a look at Ruby and I did the Ruby course on Code Academy, I think. And then I did the Michael Hartle uh, tutorial. I think I did that right after. I'm quite bad with timelines. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it was a recommendation that that might be a more beginner-friendly way for me to do uh, some of the consulting that I was doing on the side. And like Mm -hmm. the little... Rails projects, so all well, they turned into Rails projects. Um, so that's how I got into Ruby originally. Uh, it was just sort of a recommendation, and frankly, uh, at the time, I didn't know. I mean, it worked for me, and I loved that. Like Rails worked, and it was fast, and I kind of understood what I was doing. I mean, given at the time, looking back at those early things, like I didn't use version control at all. I didn't write tests at all. Like I, I didn't just know that they were a thing. And, and to think about that is like sad, <laughs> but, um, uh, but it worked even without those things I could make stuff and it, it was fast and I felt productive even as a beginner, uh, not just to the language, but to programming in general. So that's, that's sort of how I got started. And then uh, when I went to dev bootcamp, that was all in Ruby. So that was, uh, well, actually, funny enough, when I was there, because I was already pretty familiar with Ruby, um, and Node was like a big thing, and Angular was a thing, and people were talking about JavaScript being the future, so I actually spent a lot of my time there uh, working on JavaScript, uh, which is where I learned that I don't like working in JavaScript. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> some people get to that place, and some people get to the place where it's like, this is the best thing ever. Yeah. 
No, for a little bit, it was the best thing ever until it stopped becoming the best thing ever. And I sort of rediscovered how great Ruby was and how much I liked it. And, um, yeah, so then I've, I've been working Ruby for like four years now. Um, and it's, it's great. I, I am still extremely, extremely happy with that choice and happy to not be working in JavaScript. It's not my <laughs> cup of tea. Exactly. So, um, I'm, I'm also curious and I'm going to sideline this conversation a little bit too, but, uh, you mentioned that you went to a boot camp and mm-hmm. I've had people ask me, in fact, I had a cousin and one of my cousins asked me, he's like, should I go through a, a boot camp? Of course he was two years into his four years CS degree. And so, you know, we, we talked a lot about the pros and cons and, you know, it turned out that he just couldn't afford to take, you know, nine weeks off or whatever it was for the boot camp in order to do it. But I'm wondering, um, you know, who, who is the boot camp a good fit for? Did you feel like it was something that you benefited from and, you know, who else should consider doing a boot camp versus getting a CS degree or, you know, maybe just doing self-taught stuff and taking lynda.com courses or yeah. plural site and, you know, figuring it out on their own. So I personally benefited it from it, but not in like the traditional way because I was, when I went into it, I was already pretty familiar with Ruby and with rails. Um, so a lot of what I spent my time doing, uh, because they have you pair a lot. So a lot of what I spent my time doing was teaching other people in my cohort, which was a really helpful to solidify my knowledge and B, um, helped me learn, uh, how to work and how to, how to work with, I mean, it's weird saying like, more junior people when like both of us were essentially as junior as can be, but, uh, how to talk about code with someone that may not understand specific concepts and, um, coming out of that, I felt really comfortable working with, uh, people that didn't have the same level of familiarity as I did and the ability to sort of, uh, teach and mentor and help junior people, which I think is a really important skill on a team. So I got that out of it. Um, and I also got a lot of the best practices about, um, you know, the day to day working about how to use, uh, Git effectively and how to, um, you know, that's a, a big part of it, how to write tests. Um, basically the industry, industry standard stuff that I was missing, mm-hmm. I got, out. um, my take on it is I, I definitely think that people shouldn't commit to it unless they have spent some time doing it on their own first, like a significant amount of time. Um, because you may find out that it is either not something you enjoy or not something that you are particularly skilled at. Um, I know there are a lot of people that think like anyone can be a programmer. And, and I do believe that is true with time and practice, anyone can be a programmer. But I also believe that there are some people to which certain things come a little more naturally. Um, and it's just going to be easier if you're one of those people. Uh, if you really find that you love it and it's hard for you, you can make it happen. Like I, I could have made being an opera singer work for me, but, uh, my, my, uh, natural skill at that was not as, uh, significant, not as, I was not as skilled at that as some of my peers that had an easier time 
doing a better job at that. And that's, I think that's going to be the case in any profession. Um, there are certain people where success is going to be easier. And for boot camp people, especially, I think that those are the type of people that get the most out of it because of how quickly it goes. So if you, if it comes naturally and easy to you, like there were definitely some people in some cohorts where it came really naturally and easily and they are really great developers. And then there are some people that are trying really, really hard and have to try significantly harder to get to that same level. Uh, and I don't know what that is, but, uh, there are, I, I think knowing what your aptitude is a bit before going into it is really helpful. Um, if you are one of the people that doesn't, um, have maybe that natural aptitude for it, then another path might be a little slower path might be a little more effective. Um, because the idea of the boot camp is it is a lot very fast. So the people that get the most out of it are the people that are able to absorb and comprehend that amount of information. So I would definitely say do it a, a good amount before you commit. Um, that's, that's the biggest, biggest thing. Cool. Well, I'm going to get us back on track with the questions that I usually ask for this show. Um, the next one is what have you contributed to the Ruby community that people would know you for? Uh, not much. Uh, I'm sort of a drive by open source contributor. Like I will fix my own problem when I have it, but I, uh, right now, am. I mean, I, I hate saying that like I am unable to commit the amount of time necessary to be more active in open source because it really is more that I'm unwilling. Like I, I, I have a budget of responsibility that is pretty, uh, full at the moment between work and parenting and, uh, and the open source work that I do do. Um, so I don't do much of that, but I do, uh, give talks, um, somewhat regularly. I've done that for the last three years. Um, I have two coming up the next two weeks. Um, I'm going to be giving a workshop at RailsConf this year on bash scripting of all things. And, uh, then the following week, I'm going to be giving a talk in Barcelona at ElixirConf EU. Um, but yeah, I've written some blog posts and, and given some talks. If anybody knows me, that's probably from, from those things. Um, unless anybody knows like the, the two patches to rails I've made or the couple patches to our spec or scenic, which I actually really like. That's a good, great gem. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's probably it. If anybody does know me. <laughs> so, uh, I, I just want to jump in on this though, because I mean, we, we're all kind of contributing at whatever level we can or, you know, feel like we're able to. And, you know, you mentioned a couple of patches to rails um, which I think is more than a lot of people do, <laughs> to be honest. Be honest. Um, and then you've got, you know, just a few other things that kind of crop up in this. But at the same time, you know, you're you're doing your job and you're you are contributing in places. And then, you know, some of your contributions are the the talks and uh, you know, coming on Ruby Rogues and things like that. So um I don't know. I it feels like especially as we get past guests of Ruby Rogues on people feel like, oh my gosh, you know, how do I measure up to somebody that's done a bazillion videos and has patched every Ruby gem under the sun and, you know, and in, 
in some way, I think that, you know, you just chipping in where you feel like you need to, um, you know, let's just empower people to do that. Oh yeah. I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of good in that, but the, I don't know, I, I spent five years as a publicist and marketer and there's a big difference between that and like the people that, um, make a name for themselves in mm-hmm. the community. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel yeah. like yeah. I, I have not made a name for myself in the community, nor is that particularly important to me. Um, what is important to me is to, I mean, a, if I have a problem, like if there's a bug in rails that I need to get fixed because I have a project that's like not working right, I got to fix that. And of course I'm going to contribute that back upstream because it mm-hmm. seems wasteful mm-hmm. not to do that. Same thing. With, like, that's most of my open source contributions, except for one thing that I do in the Elixir community that's different. But, um, you know, there are people that are well known that have, um, I don't know if that's necessarily their intention, but there are a lot of people that are very good at um, creating a lot of great, useful things in a way that drives a brand, um, in a way that um, people know them by. Um, like, I, I think every week for the last like couple months, I have seen something written by Starhorn in Ruby Weekly. Like, I don't know how he does it, but like. I know him just because he has written so many things and they get picked up in Ruby weekly all the time. Like he spends a lot of time doing that and that's, you know, he will be known in the Ruby community probably because of that, maybe because of other things. But, um, uh, you know, there are a ton of people that, uh, have that sort of strong brand, you know? Uh, and I I don't think that's something that I, I have or, or even really want, you know, I, I think there's, being known in the community is great for some people and having that brand is great for some people. But for me, that's not really a, a goal. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I just sort of like keeping my head down and doing the work and solving problems. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, responsibility that comes with that level of visibility in a community, which, like I said, I'm, I, while my kids are young, I'm just not willing to add that to my plate. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to, there will come a time probably sooner than I would like when the scale gets turned from like my kids wanting to play with me and me not having the time to me wanting to play with them and them saying like, no Papa. So, uh, I am sort of going all in on, on the family bit for now. And then maybe in five or 10 years, if that itch becomes something I want to scratch, and I can scratch it. But for right now, I'm, I'm really happy with where I am and, uh, just sort of being part of a bigger thing and not, not trying to get any bigger than that. It's, it's a nice thing sometimes being small and not, not being known. There's, there's a lot of, uh, pressure to being known. Cool. Yeah. And star is the honey badger guy, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, I saw uh, Ben Curtis and somebody else from Honey Badger at MicroConf last week, so that was fun. Um, so what are you working on these days? These days, um, well, the last two months have been talk preparation for RailsConf and ElixirConf. Uh, at work, work, I work on internal tools mostly uh, at a company called Education Superhighway, which is based out of San Francisco. Um, and I love working on internal tools. It's great. You have like nine users and if you have any problems, you can know who to ask and you get really quick feedback and you know, it's very fulfilling to me and, uh, 
you know, you don't have to wear a pager usually. So that, like I said, sometimes not having that responsibility can be really nice. Um, but I also, um, when I'm not doing work, work stuff, I do mostly Elixir in my open source time these days. Um, I'm one of the maintainers of the Elixir track on exorcism.io. Mm-hmm. So trying to make sure that that track is properly curated and great uh, learning or practice experience for anybody working in Elixir or trying to go through the exorcism track. Um, so I'm one of the two maintainers there. And, uh, I've, I've been having, uh, this sort of itch recently to make a bad decision. That's something I, I like to do every now and then is just like do something really stupid, like learn Vim for no reason, or like just to do something that seems like it could be a really bad idea or maybe it could be a good idea. So, um, there's no good reason to learn Vim. I mean, it's just fun to do weird stuff. That's really hard and like makes your brain kind of hurt for a little bit. But I, so I, I don't have a formal education in computer science and I always, I do find computer science really cool. Um, like one of my favorite books of all time is Tom Stewart's understanding computation. Uh-huh. Just because I felt like I could get something out of it and it like every part of that was so cool to me as someone that was learning that for the first time. Um, and I would love to do something at that level, like computer science. Like one of the things that keeps going through my mind is maybe trying to write like a super basic uh, Ruby interpreter in Elixir just because it seems like it might be a terrible idea and I want to see why. Like part of me, like part of my brain says it fits so well. Like Elixir is actually pretty good and OTP is actually pretty good for modeling an object oriented language. Um, but then another part of my brain is like, no, that's a terrible idea. And I can't specify why it's a terrible idea. So I might have to explore it just to see where it goes horribly wrong and I can learn something that way. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's sort of what I'm working on these days. Plus that would sort of marry the two programming languages that I love. And I'd learn a lot more about Ruby probably that way. And definitely learn a lot more about Elixir trying to write a Ruby interpreter for it. So, uh, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So yeah, that's sort of what I'm working on these days. Not, not a whole, whole ton of stuff working on, on being a father a lot too. We're going to, we're expecting our second child in the end of July. So, uh, I'm, I'm trying to sort of ramp down the responsibility even a little further for a bit, probably take some time off giving talks and stuff to yep. focus on that. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of, sort of it for me these days. Makes sense. Well, let's go ahead and get to our last question then. Um, well, actually, before we do that, if people want to follow you on Twitter or see what you're working on on GitHub or things like that, where do they go? So on Twitter, I'm Devin C. Estes. That's D-E-V-O-N-C is my middle initial. And then Estes, E-S-D-E-S. And then on GitHub, I'm just Devin Estes without the C. Um, and I have a, a blog, too, that I try and write something in once every month. But I've been a little flaky on for the last two months. Uh, but that's devinestes.com. Nice. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. Um, did you bring some picks with you? I did. So, um, back in January, I won my fantasy football league and had some extra money that I wasn't expecting lying around. And, uh, I finally invested in an ErgoDox Easy, 
which is a rather expensive but very cool keyboard. And um, I love it. And I actually, I used to have some pain in my right hand uh, that was probably like a repetitive stress injury or not. I can't say for sure, but I do know that since I've been using it for a couple months, I got it in January and I've been using it for like four months now, three months now. Um, I, my, my hand is pain free and it feels really cool. I definitely feel cool. Uh, typing on this keyboard, which is a very important reason to have things sometimes is just to feel cool. Um, so that's one pick. Uh, and then another pick is Dragon Ball Super. So um, anyone that maybe was born in the 80s, maybe grew up watching Dragon Ball on TV. That was like one of the Saturday morning cartoons I used to watch, uh, which Dragon Ball was uh, It's an anime from uh, Japan. But they have new episodes that are coming out. Uh, it's been going for a little while in Japan, and now they're coming out with the American dub. Um, and you can see them on, I think, Cartoon Network. Uh, but you can stream them at a bunch of places online, and and they're pretty good. Uh, they're they're very good episodes. Nice nice sort of nostalgia hit for me. And uh, the animation's awesome. And yeah, it's a it's a very enjoyable series for me. So yeah, Dragon Ball Super, much better than Dragon Ball GT, which was sort of the last run, but. That's that's my second pick, and then also one other pick, another TV show. Veep is coming back to uh, HBO, and I'm very excited about that. My wife and I watched all of them so far, and they are hilarious. It's very uh, uh, raunchy humor, so if that's not your thing, I wouldn't check out Veep. But it is hilarious if that's your kind of humor. So I'm excited for the new season. Awesome. Um, I've got a couple of picks here. Uh, the first one, or, or the first several, I guess, are basically, um, so I wound up switching over to a PC um, from the Mac, and uh, I still have my MacBook Pro, and I'm still pulling data off of it, but uh, anyway, I set up a machine, uh, basically because I just wasn't that impressed with the new line of MacBook Pros. Um, they may come out with something else later on that makes me go, oh, I kind of want one of those. But for the meantime, you know, I wasn't that impressed. You know, 16 gigs of RAM, um, waiting around for the next Intel processor to drop. It just, it just wasn't that exciting. So I went out and I bought, and I spent considerably less on it less than, on a it new, than a new MacBook Pro. Um, and so anyway, I'm just going to run down some of the things that I put into it. In fact, let me just open up my Amazon real quick and I can uh, run down the list of purchases. But yeah, I I got all the parts for it and everything off of Amazon. I think I spent $1,000 on it or something. But anyway, it was really, really nice. Um, So yeah, so I got the Intel i7 uh, 7700 uh, for the processor, which was really... Anyway, it worked out pretty nicely. Um, the video card's kind of the big thing. Um, incidentally, I also did get a 64 gig of RAM. I just got the Corsair Vengeance. Turns out they have red LEDs on them, so it lights up. <laughs> uh, no, I definitely spent more than $1,000 on this. Yeah. The The case is Silverstone Technology uh, CSRL06. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um and then I got this cry Orig fan uh, or cooler for my CPU. Cause I don't want it to burn up. 
Um, and then the other thing that I spent a ton of money on for this was the GeForce GTX 1080. And uh, it runs all four monitors that I have on this computer. Um, no problem. And so that's been really nice just to be able to hook that up. I get four monitors off of it, which I couldn't do on the MacBook Pro. I get 64 gigs of RAM, which I also couldn't do on the MacBook Pro. I put an SSD in it, a one terabyte SSD. And then I put a three terabyte uh, platter SATA hard drive in it. Um, and anyway, it's, it's been really, really nice. It, it runs everything that I want it to without breaking a sweat. And that includes an Ubuntu VM and a Mac OS VM, um, at the same time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have three computers running at the same time. Yeah, pretty much. So it's, it's pretty nice. Um, so if I have dev work that I specifically need a Mac or Linux for, then I can do that. And then the other thing that I'm going to pick is I have windows 10 is it has the Linux, I forget what they call it, but it's like Windows running Xamarin? Linux. Anyway, no, it's it's a command line. It's a bash command line, and it's yeah. basically Ubuntu. It's an older version of Ubuntu. So I have had to get new um, repositories for the packages. But other than that, it, it works pretty well, and I've been able to just spin up and run Ruby just on that. So... Anyway, um, yeah, it was it was really awesome uh, just to be able to do that and run uh, run Ruby on Windows without too much trouble. And I'm probably going to be pulling together a video or two on this um, and, and putting together something on YouTube. So keep an eye out for that. But yeah, really, really digging it. And then um, one last thing is that if you're listening to this on the Ruby Rogues feed, um, the Ruby Rogues feed is now the Ruby feed from devchat.tv. Um, cause I'm actually spinning off these, my developer stories from, um, Ruby rogues, JavaScript jabber and adventures in angular into their own feeds and their own shows. And I'm also starting up, um, YouTube, um, shows on Ruby, JavaScript and angular as well. And so I'll be talking about stuff that I'm dealing with there, what I'm learning, um, stuff that is making me crazy, um, stuff that's getting me excited and it should be pretty good. So, um, those are just going to be five to 10 minute shows. You'll be getting the audio in this feed and then you'll also be getting, um, the videos. If you want to watch them, you can get them on their own feed or off of YouTube. So anyway, uh, lots of stuff going on, but yeah, um, I'm super excited about all of this and, uh, yeah, figuring out how to do it all on windows has been kind of fun. So cool. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. I'm just going to encourage everyone to go check out episode 295. Um, and yeah, we'll wrap this one up and we'll catch you all next week. Sounds good. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>